message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Well, good morning. I want to welcome you once again to Trinity Grace. We're so glad that you're here with us. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Michael. I'm the pastor here. And that was Mike Curtis. He's a pastor in our denomination, a chaplain in the military, helping lead us through some liturgy this morning. And if you have a copy of God's word, you want to turn it to Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight, the passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. And kids, I'd like to invite you to be listening for the following three things this morning in the sermon. First, be listening for why Paul asks so many questions in this passage. Second, be listening for a story about a track star, a story about a track star. And third, be listening for what Jesus is doing right now. What's Jesus doing right now? Well, as we conclude our series on Romans chapter 8 today, we'll be considering the last nine verses of this chapter. And these verses have been referred to as a great hymn of assurance, where Paul ties together all that he's been talking about from Romans chapter 5 up until now. And he ends with exalted language that's really meant to move us to praise and worship for Jesus and his work on our behalf. I know some of you have had the chance to visit mountains before, whether it be the Appalachians in the east or the Rockies in the west, and you know what it's like to spend time climbing a mountain, taking in the sights as you ascend, and then you get to the top, and maybe you're above the tree line if you're lucky and you're on a good mountain, and you're able to take in a breathtaking 360-degree view from the summit. You get to the top of the mountain and you just want to spend time up there. You want to sit for a while appreciating the landscape and the majesty that's all around. Well, Romans chapter 8 verses 31 to 39 is a mountaintop paragraph. You've climbed the peak of Paul's arguments, so to speak. All the work has led to this view and it doesn't get any higher than this. It's a description of God's work and love for us that doesn't get more beautiful or majestic than what we're about to read. N.T. Wright in his commentary on Romans 8 says, This passage is full of sustained excitement, like a symphony entering its final moments and getting faster and faster towards the end. The paragraph is presented as a thrilling rhetorical statement. Look at what God has done. Look at what the Messiah has done and is still doing even as we speak. Look around and see the many things that threaten to separate you from the powerful love which reaches out through the cross and the resurrection and learn that they're all beaten foes. Learn to dance and sing, he says, for joy to celebrate the victory of God. The end of Romans 8 deserves to be written in the letters of fire on the living tablets of our hearts. Well, Paul begins laying out the beauty and majesty of the gospel in Romans chapter 5, and it leads to the mountaintop that we find here at the end of Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, this is God's word, and he gives it to us because he loves us, and he wants us to know him. Jason Isbell is one of my favorite musicians, and he has a beautiful song entitled, If We Were Vampires, where he writes and sings about the love that he has for his wife. And in that song, he highlights what he loves about her. And at one point, he sings about how she has the ability to talk him off the ledge and how her questions are oftentimes like directions to the truth. And it's a really beautiful line in that song, your questions like directions to the truth. A good question has the potential to lead us toward truth, doesn't it? Asking good questions, it provokes thought. It forces a person to reflect and it challenges them to work towards a solution. I can't help but think about how often Jesus responds to people's requests with questions throughout the Gospels. He seemed to appreciate the pedagogical or the teaching value that questions can have. The questions of Jesus often brought people face to face with the truth. And as we pick back up in Romans chapter 8, here at the end of this passage, this chapter, Paul strings together, you likely noticed, a series of questions. And these questions are meant to invite us to reflect Questions that challenge us to remember God's love. Questions that lead us to the truth. The questions that Paul raises here at the end of Romans 8 were questions that followers of Jesus in the first century would have had. They're questions that we oftentimes have as well. Or at least you should have had these questions if you're honest about what it's like to live in this fallen world. The questions Paul asks leads us to reflect on doubts that we encounter on a daily basis. Doubts like, who's going to provide for me? Doubts like, how could anyone accept me or love me after all the mistakes I've made? Doubts like, maybe God's patience has worn thin when he thinks of how slow I am to learn and to grow. It's these doubts that that Paul directly addresses at the end of Romans chapter 8. He wants to ask us some questions. He wants to invite internal conflict as we wrestle with these questions. And by asking his questions, Paul is hoping to lead us to the truth. He wants to lead us to a deeper assurance of God's love in our life. Paul knows how easy it is to allow our circumstances to dictate our beliefs. He knows how prone we are to believe lies, to listen to other voices besides Christ's in our life. And so he wants to remind us this morning by way of Romans 8 about what is true. 
And he invites us to order our lives according to that truth, according to God's promises, not according to our daily circumstances, which can often be very difficult. The whole section from chapter 5 up to the verses that we just read in Romans chapter 8 is all about assurance, all about assurance. We hear so many voices in our lives. We hear the voices of the world the voices internally of our sinful flesh, the voices of the spiritual forces of evil and the devil, they all sing to us. The voices of our own guilt and shame, our doubts and our sufferings, and they all want us to question God's love and care and control in this world. And the older we get, the easier it is to believe that God's angry with us, that God might be against us. But the end of Romans 8, it stands as a reminder that the resurrected and ascended Jesus wants us to know that God loves us. We see the big idea from this passage in verses 35 and 39. And the big idea is that God loves us. His love can never fail, that nothing can separate you from his love. That's the big idea this morning. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing you've done, nothing that's been done to you, nothing you've said or thought, nothing can separate you from God's love. And as we consider this text, we're going to look at the three questions that Paul asks at the beginning of our passage and allow those questions to help us see God's unbreakable love for his people. And Paul asks questions that we all have, or at least should have, if we're honest about our experience. And these questions, they lead us to some truth about God that remains true no matter our circumstances. Based on the question Paul asks, we'll consider this passage under three headings this morning. First, I want us to see that God provides. Second, that God justifies. And third, that God abides. Those are our three points this morning. Let's begin by considering how God provides. The first question Paul raises to invite us to reflection is, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, you might read that first question and respond, who can be against us? Well, lots of things can be against us, right? And that's certainly true. If you step back and think about it, sin is against us. The spiritual forces of darkness are against God's work in this world. Our own sinful tendencies can sabotage our good intentions. The list of things against us can be pretty long. Paul knows that there are lots of things stacked against us. And he doesn't discount those things. He doesn't put his head in the sand, but he wants us to see them in light of who we have on our side. Paul is making a comparison in verse 31. And to understand his point, you have to see that the word if can also be translated there since, which helps us understand the comparison that Paul's trying to make in verse 32. Since God is for us, since he's on our side, who at the end of the day can be against us? In comparison to who we have on our side, no one can stand against us. That's what Paul is saying. God's purposes are going to prevail. The universal flourishing that he is set on accomplishing is going to come to pass. 
Paul then goes on to give some proof for that assertion by writing, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, Paul is saying God has already given the most valuable thing he could give. He gave his son, and so we can be confident that he'll give us whatever else we might need for our ultimate good. Not our present comfort, but our ultimate good. And that's such an important distinction to make. God never promises us comfort. He never promises us happiness in this life. But he does promise to work all things out for our ultimate good, our eternal good. But there are many things that stand against us, like our suffering and pain. But our suffering, it can't separate us from the love of God. Even though we follow Jesus, we still experience tragedies and sufferings. I mean, this week is a perfect example of that. We experience tragedies and sufferings like all people, but that does not negate God's love and care. God didn't spare his own son. And I love how Paul puts it there. He didn't spare his own son. He didn't passively protect his son. He actively let Jesus have it. He didn't pull any punches. As the wrath against sin was poured over Jesus, God the Father did not try to make it stop. Hell came down upon Christ. Justice was rendered against sin. The wrath of God was fully satisfied when Jesus suffered on the cross. And this is what Paul is saying. If God spared not his own son, if he let his own son have it, if he was willing to go to hell for you, if he was willing to let his son have it for you, whatever you're asking for now, it's nothing compared to what he's already given you. Therefore, if you're suffering now, if you're in pain now, if you're uncomfortable now, God must have a good reason for why he's letting you go through what you're going through. God is the one who provides all that we need. He's already given the most expensive gift he could give us. And he promises to continue to provide for all our needs, graciously giving us all things that lead to our ultimate good and our ultimate flourishing. And this means that if we aren't getting what we think we need or deserve right now in our present circumstances, it can't be because God is mad at us. It can't be because he's not generous towards us. It can't be because he's not powerful enough to make things happen. It's because he knows what we need better than we know it ourselves. And he's set on giving us what is going to grow us in Christ's likeness and accomplish his redemptive purposes in our lives and in this world. And sometimes God's purposes aren't aligned with ours. That almost goes without saying, doesn't it? And it can frustrate us when that happens. It can leave us questioning what God is up to. It can make us sad. But we're called to live by faith in God's promises. And to come back again and again to the truth that if God didn't spare his own son for me, I can be sure that he's giving me what's best in these more mundane areas of life. It's God who provides for his children. And we can relax. We can stop grasping for control. Stop trying to maneuver and to manipulate people and events in our lives because we know that God is in control and he always provides for us. He gives us what's best. Paul wants us to see that God provides. 
But he also wants us to see that God is one who justifies. The second question Paul asks is found in verses 33 and 34 where he writes, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who can bring a charge? Who can condemn? And once again, you might stop and say, well, I hear lots of condemning voices on a daily basis that seek to bring charges against me. We feel like there are so many things in our lives that might stand to condemn us, don't we? You think of your children or your spouse or your job or your friends or your in-laws your past failures, your regrets. It seems like there's lots of voices out there more than happy to condemn me. But this question, it brings us back full circle to how Paul begins chapter 8 when he said that there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You have been set free from guilt and shame You have been credited with the righteousness of Jesus. You've been fully accepted by God. Who can bring a charge against you if only one voice matters? God has made you right in the most ultimate sense. And compared to the verdict that you've received from God through Jesus, all other verdicts should pale in comparison. We can now live according to the most important verdict that could ever be handed down. No one can overturn God's verdict in your life, and it should be the verdict that directs your life. The most important thing about you, the verdict that defines who you are. What you and I are searching for in our lives on a daily basis is a verdict that will set us free. We are all looking for verdicts in our lives, verdicts that tell us that we're okay, verdicts that affirm us, verdicts that tell us that we're approved. And these verdicts, they come from lots of different places. Our jobs, our spouses, our children, our parents, our morality, lots of different voices passing different verdicts on you on a daily basis. And we look to these voices to give us an identity. We look to these voices like a husband or a wife or our jobs or our parenting skills or the group of friends that we have, and we make a demand of those voices. We say, tell me who I am. Define my life for me. Tell me that I'm okay. We wait for those verdicts to define us, to give our life meaning and purpose, and I wonder if you like what you hear this morning. Do you like the verdicts that have been passed down this week on your life? More often than not, we don't because these voices and the verdicts they pass were never meant to define us. In fact, if they do, it leads to one of two places. These voices can lead to abject discouragement because we don't like what we hear, or they can lead to self-inflation because we're being affirmed. Discouragement or pride, it leads to one of the two places. Look at the voice of achievement for an example. If you look to your job to tell you who you are, then when you don't perform as expected, you might feel worthless. You might beat yourself up. You might not be able to sleep at night. But if you perform well, then you'll feel superior and you're going to start looking down on others who aren't as talented as you. 
But either way, we're demanding that our performance, our achievement define us to tell us who we are and we live in response to the verdict that we hear. Your life is going to be characterized by joy and freedom or anxiety and despair depending on which verdict dictates your life. You can either take the approach of justifying yourself by your performance or you can let God justify you as he makes atonement for your sin in Christ. And this is illustrated beautifully in the movie Chariots of Fire. I mentioned this before, but in the movie, Harold Abrahams is an Olympic track athlete. And he's the Olympic champion in 1924. And when asked why he runs, he surprisingly says he doesn't do it because he loves it. He says, I'm more of an addict. Before running the 100-meter Olympic event, he sighs and says, contentment, I'm 24, and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? I wonder what your four-foot-wide corridor is. Where in your life are you looking to justify your existence today? For some of you, it's your children. If you could raise well-adjusted, obedient children, you will have justified your existence. For some of you, it's morality. If you can just stay away from certain behaviors, and then you'll feel worthwhile and acceptable like God smiles upon you more if you refrain from certain activities. For some of you, it's achievement. If you just made a little bit more money or impressed a few more people, then you might be fulfilled. And as we look to justify our existence with what we do, we will constantly be comparing ourselves to others. We'll live in a state of anxiety. We'll burn ourselves out. We'll grow cynical and bitter. Allowing any other voice except Jesus's to define us will bring deep insecurity and constant doubts. But if you will let Jesus, if you would let his perfect verdict dominate your life, if that would be the loudest voice you hear, you could experience life and freedom. Because Christ's voice is the only one that offers forgiveness when you fail. And fail you will. 
The only one that offers complete fulfillment if you follow him. His path leads to flourishing. Jesus is the only one who can justify us. And Paul reminds us that Jesus is the one who is presently right now interceding on our behalf. That's what Christ is doing right now. Jesus is in front of God the Father. Get this. He is demanding justice as our advocate and intercessor. He can ask God to give us what we now deserve based on his work. Jesus is not just pleading for mercy anymore. He is pleading that God not punish the same sin twice. That's interesting to think about. The law of God demands your acquittal because Jesus has already fully paid your penalty. Our sin can't separate us from the love of God. It's been paid for. As one pastor said, you are no less saved on your worst day and no more saved on your best day. Satan in our own consciences might bring charges against us, but God has declared us to be righteous. I'm reminded of the woman who was caught in adultery in John chapter 8, and she's brought to Jesus for punishment. And she's surprised after she's brought to Jesus for punishment, and Jesus interacts with her and with her accusers, and she stands up, and she finds that all the accusing voices have departed. Because Jesus is the one who forgives. Who's left to condemn? You're free, he says. Now go and lean into righteous living, knowing that no one condemn you can condemn you if Jesus has justified you. So we've seen that God provides for us. We've seen that God justifies us. Now let's turn and briefly consider how God abides with us. The third question Paul asks is found in verse 35 where he writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And once again, we hear the question and we think, well, it seems like lots of things might threaten to separate us from the love of Christ. And we think of our failures, our doubts, our besetting sins, the pull of the world, our craving for comfort. And Paul asks, who will separate us from such amazing love? And then he lists seven things that threaten to separate us from the love of Christ. He says, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Now, why does Paul make that list? Well, if you were to go and read the book of Acts, the historical part of the New Testament where the first century church was expanding across the known world, if you were to go and follow along with Paul's life in the book of Acts and even in some of his letters, you would see that he has experienced every one of these things over and over and over again. And Paul wants us to appreciate that believers are not exempt from difficulties. Even after living faithful lives, even after giving everything for Jesus and his calls in this world, Paul is still still susceptible to the worst of trials. That's what Paul is getting at in verse 36 by quoting Psalm 44. It's a psalm about how God's people are experiencing difficulty in trial, not after being disobedient, but after remaining faithful to him. That's what the psalm is all about. 
Even after following God's ways, it feels like they're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul wants us to appreciate that nothing can sever us from God's love. After all, God himself has made his dwelling inside of our hearts. And what that means is that we take him wherever we go. That's an interesting thought. You are exposing God to your joy and your sadness, exposing God to your righteousness and your sin as you take him wherever you go in this world because he dwells in your hearts. God is abiding in us. And because of that, we're not copers. We're not copers. We're not a group of people who are just looking to get by. We're not a group who is seeking to passively just make it through this fallen world. No, Paul reminds us that we are more than conquerors. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church and the mission that God has given her to accomplish. Though you might experience difficulties and sufferings in this fallen world, God is with you and nothing can separate you from his love. Though we might not always feel that to be true in the course of our day-to-day lives, we have the promises from God that we're meant to cling to even when our experiences in life calls us to doubt. Look, are you persuaded of these truths like Paul was? If God says that he is for me, what gives me the right to question that? What gives me the right to say, I don't really believe that? I wish that you would do something differently in my life so that you might prove it for me. He's already given all that he can give. Are you persuaded of God's love and care and provision? If you're in Christ, then you've experienced God's provision. You can rest in God's approval. And you can move forward confident that God promises to never leave you nor forsake you. And because of these promises, we can confidently confess right alongside Paul, the final words of this glorious mountaintop chapter. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness, your care, your provision in our lives. You're the one who gives us all that we need, all that is good for us. You're the one who justifies us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live according to the verdict that you have handed down upon us, perfectly accepted, righteous in Christ. Lord, you're the one who lives inside of our hearts. And we pray that as we move through seasons of joy and sadness, seasons of sin and righteousness, that you would help us to remember that you are with us and that nothing can separate us from your love. We pray that that would comfort us and give us great hope this week as we seek to follow you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.